Hi, I'm Pastor Lori Boucher, and I want to personally welcome you to the HeartStrong Discipleship Podcast. Are you ready to study the Bible together chapter by chapter? If you go to heartstrong.life and sign up for a free membership, you will get access to the full Bible reading plan and all the bonus discipleship content that we have prepared for you. Open up your Bible and get ready to take some notes because God is going to speak to you today. Let's become heartstrong disciples together through the study of God's Word. Well, good morning. Good morning. And uh, would somebody be willing to open us up just in prayer? And uh, I would just really, really appreciate that. I'd be happy to lead us in prayer. Thank you. Our Father and our God, how awesome are you? How great is your name? We lift you up this morning in our hearts as we rise to attend to our activities for the day, starting with Hatchcraft. We ask, Lord, that you lead, guide, and direct us throughout this day. We especially want to dedicate this next hour to you, Lord. We ask that your Holy Spirit will guide us, will illuminate our hearts, that the words that will be spoken to Pastor Terry and everybody that will contribute to you, Lord. With the words of life, they will minister to us, bless us, strengthen us, and encourage us for this day and the days to come. Thank you for the magnificent presence of the Holy Spirit and the joy of the fellowship that we have gathering together around the feast of your world. Bless us today through your word and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, Dele. With someone also, I love to call on people and just get as much participation as possible. Would someone, does anyone know our memory verse for the month? Would anyone know it off by heart yet and be willing to unmute themselves and uh, share the, the verse with us? I don't know it by heart, but I can read it. That would be great. A memory verse, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Or do you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Amen. Amen. Well, yesterday we were introduced to Leviticus as a whole, and I hope it wasn't too much for anyone. Um, uh, and hopefully that as the day by day, we will continue to be able to just to build an understanding uh, and that every day we'll sort of build on each other. Um, but just to sort of uh, just quickly recap, uh, Leviticus, if you remember, means it's a, it comes from a Latin word meaning as pertaining to the priests. And it, it features the one month in between the end of the book of Exodus and the beginning of Numbers. And it's relating to the requirements of the covenants as related to the priesthood. And so the biggest question I think all we all bring into this is why does this matter for us so much as New Testament Christians living in 2022? This, this very strange book that speaks of a lot of blood and animals and altars and, and uh, sacrifices. Well, why does Leviticus matter? It, it matters so much because it is an incredible book which foreshadows Christ, who is our perfect sacrifice. And Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12 to 14 reads this. And remember, Leviticus is such a wonderful book in helping us to understand the book of Hebrews. 
Uh, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So this week we're looking at you know the, the, the five sacrifices in, in the Levitical law. But we remember that they all, in a, in a way, and we will, you know, highlight each, uh, foreshadow Christ, who is a single sacrifice for sins, a perfect sacrifice. He is a perfect sacrifice and a fragrant offering made to God, as Ephesians says. Meaning, when it, when it says a fragrant offering, it means that it was fully accepted by God for the sins of the world. And yesterday we, we looked at Leviticus chapter 1. Our readings were Leviticus 1 and 2, and today they're 3 and 4. Um, but we looked at Leviticus 1 yesterday and specifically looked at the proper measures that a worshiper needed to go through uh, in order for their sacrifice to be accepted by God. Do you remember what those measures were? We, we highlighted three, three sort of main things that a worshiper needed to, to have in order for their sacrifice to be accepted. Uh, it was a perfect gift. They needed to bring a perfect gift, a perfect place, and do it in a, with a perfect presentation. And I just want to really highlight, especially for our introduction here, is that it's easy for us when reading Leviticus to get caught up in all the externalities of the book and the sacrifices. But don't lose sight of the internal in every sacrifice and act of worship in this book. Worship has and always will be about the heart. And though there's a lot of things we don't understand, it continues to um, drive back to the heart of the worshiper. Uh, today, as well as that ancient Israelite who was part of this uh, system of sacrifice. So we saw this in the burnt offering. Um, that How the burnt offering was this voluntary offering made to God. But it had, a, it had symbolism that you would burn up the entire animal to signify the holistic and complete surrender to God. As the animal was holy and completely burnt up on the altar, so too was your worship and surrender to God to be holistic and complete and just full in, in every way. And then today what we're going to do is we're going to focus on uh, Levit Leviticus chapter 2 and 3. So we're going to catch up as we go throughout the week. But we're going to look at the next two voluntary offerings in the, in the, in the, of the five sacrifices. And that's the grain offering and the peace offering. And what I would like to do is uh, we're not going to go read the entire text because that would be a bit redundant and repetitive. But what I do want to do is just highlight um, a few verses from each chapter just for us to get a feel for the text. And so I'm just going to ask, would somebody be willing to open up their Bibles to Leviticus chapter 2 and read from verse 1 to 3? And then would somebody else uh, follow that up by reading Leviticus chapter 3, verse 1 to 5? So we're going to read both offerings, just a little portion of it. And remember, when we read it, we read it like a detective looking for clues. And, and as you are reading through it, look for those repeating patterns. Look for the things we talked about yesterday. The gift, you know, the proper place, the proper presentation. Look for the different thematic elements like when the gifts offered, that it's a pleasing aroma to God and so forth. Um, but look for those various clues. So would who is willing and ready to read? Oh, Diane, thank you so much. You can, you can go right ahead. 
When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar. Food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offering. Thank you, Diane. Would someone else have Leviticus 3, 1 to 5 ready to go? I can go, Pastor Terry. Thank you. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering, as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering, the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove from the kidneys. Then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar of the top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. There we go. Beautiful. Beautiful. There we go. See, it's not too bad, isn't it? <laughs> uh, so there we see, we just read the peace offering, which uh, we're going to see is very similar to the burnt offering. Um, the laying on of hands. And we also see the laying on of hands, as uh, Carol Ann's question was yesterday, uh, of the worshiper onto the animal's head. And yes, you know, that did have meaning and purpose. It wasn't just a, you know, a throwaway line. Um, very simply, why you would lay your hands on the animal's heads was uh, it, it signified transference, you know, transference of your, your sin to the animal's sin. And, um, and I think also it, it, it also uh, signified ownership, that by putting your hand on the animal and participating in this act of sacrifice, you were recognizing that, yes, this is my sin <laughs> that is being atoned for. Uh, this is, you know, my sacrifice. The animal is the one paying the price, but, you know, it's my sin that is being paid for. The grain offering in chapter two and peace offerings in chapter three were, like uh, the burnt offering, individuals' voluntary offerings of thanksgiving for the Lord's bounty. Now, I remember as a child being told how please and thank you can go a very long way in life. And have you ever thought about how a thank you can go a very long way in God's book? You know, like the 10 lepers in the Gospels who are healed by Jesus, yet there's only one who receives healing and returns to give thanks. You know, in the middle of the burnt offering we, we looked at yesterday and the peace offering in chapter three is the grain offering. Now, the grain offering would usually accompany a burnt offering. And, a, and baked bread was required for this offering, for, for the peace offering. You know, these grain offerings completed the symbolic meal of communion that was held between the worshiper, the priest, and the Lord. And we know that the association of thanksgiving uh, with the bread is, of course, a tradition that Jesus established and continued for the church. That's something we continue to do to today. 
You know, and we see this in the miracle of the feeding of the, of the thousands, uh, that before giving out the bread, what did Jesus do? He broke it and he gave thanks. And he did the exact same thing uh, for the Lord's Supper. And we know the we know communion by another name, that is the Eucharist, which is a word that means the great thanksgiving. It reminds me of Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so from this passage, what we learn is that worship involves an attitude and a heart of thanksgiving to God, that your worship is not complete without thanksgiving. You know, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, and we pray things like, give us this day our daily bread, we are recognizing that the ultimate source of our provision and sustenance is the Lord. And so by presenting these grain offerings as a sacrifice, you know, the Israelite expressed recognition and thankfulness for God's grace in providing his everyday blessings. You know, Jesus would often remind his followers how they should not obsess over their basic needs. Why? Because it's the Lord who will care and provide for them. And so, you know, why bread? Well, bread was a staple of that period in time. And everyone from the richest to the poor, uh, they could offer a measure of flour as a sacrifice, as an offering. And the flour was even used for sin and guilt offerings by the poorest of poor. Remember yesterday how we talked about how if you were poor, you could bring a, uh, a bird rather than a, uh, than, than, a, than a bull. But if you were even like of extreme poverty, a measure of flour could be used as a, as a gift. Uh, but we know meat was a delicacy, right? Enjoyed by the rich. And so bread was the common person's meal in that day and even for many tears today in our world. So the worshiper would bring uncooked grain that consisted of fine flour that was derived from wheat, and they would add to it oil and frankincense. Now, of course, those are not just two throwaway, uh, you know, <laughs> additions. Oil and frankincense uh, symbolized joy, and they marked for the worshiper that this was a happy occasion. And oil also had a feature of making the flour combustible. <laughs> so it would sort of, uh, you know, make the, the, the offering just that much bigger and greater because of its combustibility. After the present preparation, the individual would present it to the priest at the main altar. And what the priest would do, as we read in Leviticus 2, is he'd take a handful of this, this, uh, of this as a representative portion that was to be burned up. Uh, this signified God's portion, and it served to remind them of God's provision in their lives. The remainder of the gift, identified in the text as the most holy part, was the priest's portion. And the priests could only eat it, and only in the sanctuary could they eat it. It was, it was probably very close to the altar, and it would be the daily portion of food the priests ate as their stipend. This was their, their daily uh, paycheck, if you would, this bread that was offered as a gift that they would eat the remaining portion. So if the flour was already baked before it was offered uh, to God, whether that's an oven, you know, griddle or a pan, then the text tells us in verse 4 to 10 how the frankincense was no longer required. Well, why? 
Well, one of, the, one of the reasons for this was that this was enabling the poor to make their gifts in a way without even adding to them any more undue financial hardship. Uh, so in verse eight, you know, it reads how that we, we, we learned that the text says that they were bringing the bread to the Lord, even though the priest, the one who gets to eat the gift, it was a reminder here in verse eight that this was not an offering to the priests, but an act of worship that was directed to God. And, you know, when we give our tithes and offerings to the church, you know, we often maybe sometimes forget that our offerings are being made primarily to the Lord. When we give to the church, we're not, we're not giving to the church or the pastors, of the programs we are giving to the Lord. You know, at a previous church that I once worked at years ago, you know, I encountered a member who told me that he refused to give because he did not agree with how the funds of the church were being stewarded. So he was withholding his tithe until the church, you know, demonstrated better financial stewardship in what he, what he deemed to be, you know, was needed. Now, that's a spicy meatball, one that I'm not going to get into this morning, um, not until my second cup of coffee is, is, is enjoyed. <laughs> uh, but if the primary motivation, you know, for your giving is the church's budgetary items, you know, perhaps you are missing the point. And when we give, our giving is a gift to the Lord. And I just want to encourage all of you is that when you give, when you tithe, see it as just, I am giving this to God. And I am trusting God to be the one who will keep his church accountable. And he will. So all grain offerings were to be seasoned with salt. This is what verse 11 to 13 takes care of. And its presence was not only for flavoring purposes, as you can imagine, but the salt was a reminder of God's covenant with his people. The permanency of salt was a reminder of the permanency of God's faithfulness in his covenantal relationship with Israel. And it was also a reminder to the worshiper of the very reason they were bringing their gift to the altar in the first place. You know, the primary critique of Jesus uh, in Israel was that of, of the Israelites in his day was that they continued to maintain these religious rites and practices. Yet there was no authenticity in their heart when it came to their relationship with God. You know, they were going through the motions or even worse, they were morally and spiritually corrupt while going through the motions with little care or worry. And so, you know, we, we learn that the bread must also be free from yeast or honey. And yeast or leaven was added to the dough to provide, as, we, as most of you know, like fermentation and cause the dough to rise into a loaf. It's what makes bread so fluffy and delicious. Um, but the yeast was very symbolic in that day of, of a foreign agent that you were adding to the the mixture that would corrupt the mixture. And you've already discussed, you know, the unleavened bread in Exodus, if you remember back a few weeks, and how, you know, for the Israelites, leaven or yeast became a symbol uh, for the evil that corrupts the people of God. You know, Mark chapter 8, verse 15 says, and he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, that explains the yeast, but the reason for adding honey is actually not explained. Uh, per perhaps it suggested that it too corrupted the dough. 
And others believed that uh, since honey was a very common feature in pagan offerings to the gods, that the addition of honey would uh, lead to confusion with idolatrous offerings. So it was left out not to add any sort of confusion with other uh, pagan offerings. Finally, in verse 14 to 16, we, we read how the, if the grain was the first fruits of the harvest, these first fruits represented the first and the very best produce of the harvest. And they belonged to the Lord, and they were part of the feasts of first fruits. You know, we have a similar tradition um, here in Canada at weddings, you know, how the bride and groom get the first piece of cake. Same at birthday parties, you know, uh, the, the, birthday, the birthday child will get the first piece of cake. Um, I, one member from our, in Canada was telling me she's Jamaican, how, and forgive me um, if you're Jamaican, I'm forgetting the name of the, uh, the feast, but the, they celebrate in the church, the first of the harvest by everyone brings sort of the best fruits of the harvest and they lay it all at the very front of the church. And it's just symbolic all across the front of the church is like this incredible produce of fruits and vegetables and everything you can think of. And then they all celebrate a, a meal together to celebrate, you know, the, the, the gift of the harvest. But by presenting the first fruits to the Lord, the Israelites were recognizing that it was the Lord who granted them this land. It was the Lord who had provided them this produce for their enjoyment. And all of this, this teaching of giving the first to the Lord, you know, it kind of coincides with the New Testament teaching how we ourselves are to give our very first and our best to the Lord. You know, 2 Corinthians 8, chapter, verse 5 says, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection, and we will join him as the first fruits of his new creation. And 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You know, we, we have probably heard the financial advice that is given of pay yourself first, that when you receive your check or your, your, uh, your paycheck, or, or when, for those of you who are on the call before, I think the recording call, when Carol Ann receives her very first payment from the prime minister, which uh, you'll have to ask her what that, that joke means. The financial advice is take a per portion of that and pay yourself first. But I want to encourage you to follow a spiritual advice of pay God first. Let God receive the very first of your income. Don't pay yourself first. Pay God first. So that covers um, the, the grain offering. So let's look at Leviticus 3 quickly here of the fellowship offering. I think you're going to enjoy this, this one. So 1 John chapter 1, verse 3 says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So this offering, also known as the peace offering, was a voluntary expression of a worshiper's praise for God's deliverance in their life. Whereas the grain offering in chapter 2 was thanksgiving for God's provision, the peace offering was usually related to God's blessing. And it was the only offering in Leviticus that both the priests and the worshipers ate signifying the fellowship of the Israelite and God. And it was also a communal meal that was shared with the worshipers' family and their invited guests. But normally there were three reasons why you would make a, a peace offering, a fellowship offering. 
Number one, give, you would give thanks for an, for an answered prayer. Number two, it would be an offering after a vow that you made to the Lord was fulfilled. Or number three, it was a free will offering that is presented for no other reason other than you want to celebrate and worship God. You know, Hebrews 13 verse 16 says this, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So this procedure would very closely resemble the burnt offering in chapter one. You would choose the animal that you would bring to the Lord and you would place your hand on the victim, signifying the transference of your sin to the animal. And the blood would be thrown against the altar to demonstrate the life of the, that the, the life of the animal belonged to the Lord. The fats and the organs would be burned up to indicate that these portions were the best portion of the animal and therefore they belonged to the Lord. You know, it's funny how um, in, a, you know, in the more of the carnivore, carnivore diet world, or if you are into the, the meat only diets, uh, how organ meat, like, you know, the, some of the, like the liver and what well, not the heart um, have recently become more popularized in uh, some of these diets. Um, but that they signified the very best of the animal and therefore they were burnt up to say it belongs to the Lord. The very best of the animal belongs to the Lord. Some also believe that the liver was burnt up due to the liver being used in other pagan practices of divination. Um, and so, you know, rather than um, use, you know, use the liver as part of the sacrifice, it was to show by burning it up, it was showing your exclusive commitment to the Lord and not to the world of the magical arts. So the burnt offering in chapter one preceded the peace offering to convey to the worshiper that the basis for his fellowship with God was the atonement and forgiveness of sin that the burnt offering represented. So you offered a burnt offering first to signify your forgiveness, your atonement, and then you would bring your fellowship offering. You know, just like our fellowship with God is founded on the atoning work of Jesus Christ. You know, Christian fellowship, fellowship with God and fellowship with each other is a spiritual dynamic only experienced by those who have been spiritually regenerated. You know, the church is not a social club. It's not a place where we just get together to hang out. But there's something spiritual, a spiritual power that happens. It's a spiritual dynamic that for the ones who have been, their sin has been atoned for and they've been forgiven, that there is a spiritual dynamic of Christian fellowship that takes place in the spiritually regenerated. So because the priest and the worshiper with his family and guests partook of the animal's meat, you know, it was indicating that God had provided a means to have fellowship with his people. This was the desire of the Lord. The Lord wanted to be their God and for them to be his people. And so, you know, they would share this meal and it would signify that they now have fellowship with God. So verse 16 to 17, uh, you know, it gets a little bit strange. And there are some, some words that I just want to highlight here. Uh, some, you know, there's some challenges in the text that the interpreters have sort of wrestled with. Uh, but we see how the prohibitions against eating the fat and the blood were what the, the text says as a statute forever throughout Israel's generations. And there's been some confusion around what does that mean? Um, but very just briefly, by this declaration, the Lord ensured Israel that his desire was to enjoy Israel as a people for all time. 
know, this was him declaring that he would not be a fickle like other monarchs are and were. And the word in your dwelling places uh, was meaning that God provided the land that would be their home. This is the first time, and we're going to see it again, that this phrase statute forever occurs in Leviticus. And the word statute means it describes a royal and legal enactment that must be kept. So observance of the decrees of the Lord meant a secure and prosperous life in the land. You know, we, we read about this, or you will, sorry, read about this later on in Deuteronomy, that if you obey, you know, there will be blessings. But if you don't obey, it will result in curses. Final comment, and then I'll close because we're at 630. The fellowship that the Lord was providing Israel was a fellowship that was eternal in purpose, but not eternal in actuality, meaning the relationship was broken by the failure of Israel to keep the covenant statutes. Yet throughout the Old Testament, there remained a promise for God's people of a new covenant. Though they broke the old covenant and they failed to keep these statutes, God continued to promise them a new covenant. And I think there's no better verse in all the Old Testament that um, declares this than Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 to 34, which reads this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So this new covenant would be a covenant that would be established by the Lord Jesus Christ with his own blood, so that all who believe in him will enter into the salvation and the fellowship of the Lord forever. So our fellowship today with God is secured for us, not through our offering, but through the offering of the life of Jesus Christ, which means that it cannot be ever jeopardized. Our fellowship with God cannot be jeopardized by our disobedience, because how we receive this fellowship is because of Christ's perfect obedience to the statutes of the Lord. And so with that, we'll just close with a resounding amen and amen. Thank you for joining us for today's Bible study. Don't forget to visit heartstrong.life to access our daily blog for even more encouragement. Visit the HeartStrong shop with all kinds of awesome merch like hoodies, t-shirts, and mugs to remind you of this awesome journey of discipleship that you are on. Log in to heartstrong.life to access all your member content, resources, and downloads. We have live Bible studies for adults, students, and a Bible boot camp for kids. Let's become heartstrong disciples together.